Coming up, responding to your, let's call it, interesting feedback in relation to the physics of towing. Video I did yesterday, incidentally, I'll put a link uh, somewhere up there if my adult brain remembers. That's next. I'm Logan from AutoExpo.com.au and I get new cars cheap. Australia only, dirty, big CO2 belching utes among them that can tow three and a half ton aluminium chitois, the acoustically transparent porter slum you've been lusting after, all the way to Dingo Piss Creek. No guarantee you'll be getting back, but hey, getting there is really the main game. Website! God! Now, I've been pumping out a little bit more content lately, you might have noticed, and one of my sinister objectives with all of that is to engage with you like this a bit more as a sort of de facto dialogue, right? A real exchange between you out there in the comments and me sitting here on my ass underneath palatial Chateau Schittsville here in the fat cave, all right? So, to wit, this does not mean suck fest, however. I've got the creme de la creme here of YouTube commenters from the towing package yesterday. And I just want to oxygenate some of that. You know, oxygenate does not mean suck fest. Like, dude, if you put your size 10 up on the desk and play with the bat pumpy and just negligently blow a couple of toes off, I'm not the kind of dude who's going to tell you that that's okay. Because it's not. So... With that in mind, Sunrise is this person's alleged name. I'm a bit annoyed my VFSS Commodore only has a tow capacity of 1,600 kilograms, while a base model Evoke Commodore can tow 2,000. This happens all the time, and outwardly, I guess I could understand how someone went, ah, what the? This is a better version and it tows less. How does that work? In the case of the Commodore, right, I think it's all due to the tyres. Like the Evoke runs, cheat notes, 22560R16s, okay, and the SS runs high-performance tyre, like 24545R18. And that high-performance tyre is going to be better at braking and swerving and cornering and all of that fun stuff, right? But it's not going to be as good at carrying load because the sidewall is going to be that versus the sidewall on the base model Chitois of a bit bigger, okay? So the limitation there likely to be tyres, but there are all kinds of incongruities apparently in tow capacity across model variants within the same model. And a classic example here is Sportage, right? The Kia Shortage is... Um, the two-litre front-wheel drive auto can tow 1,650 kilos, okay? That's the auto. But the manual, same thing, manual, can tow 1,900 kilos. So that tells me, with all other things being equal, that the most likely answer is that the auto is just a little bit vulnerable in heavy towing, so they knocked back the capacity for the auto. If you step up and buy the 1.6 turbo version of the Shortage, the DCT version, right, 1,650 kilos for that one, whereas if you buy the 2-litre diesel with its conventional epicyclic auto, that's capable of towing 1,900. So there's got to be something about the DCT that knocks it back a little bit as well, I'd assume. Okay, now, 
the overarching thing with all of that is that it's not just about the mass of the trailer because in all of these cases, the download limit is 100 kilos. And 100 is a little bit light for 1,650 or 1,900 kilos when you factor in the fact that most trailers in Australia are designed for 10% download to give you reasonable stability in pitch and yaw, okay? So you're really going to be limited in any case by the download and you probably, you know, it's probably a bit life on the ragged edge towing more than about 1,200 kilos with a Sportage because that would be about, I don't know, 8% download at 100 kilos if you can configure your trailer that way. So Anyway, there's a lot of different factors to consider when it comes to the tow capacity of the vehicle and why there's differences between different model grades, okay? So if towing is super important to you, I would be getting those specifications and cross-checking exactly the variant that you were going to buy. And I would not just look at the tow capacity, I'd look at the download limit, the gross combination mass, the GVM, all of that stuff, okay? You've got to tick every one of these boxes. They're not optional if you want to comply. And they're also certainly not optional if you want to be safe and have ongoing insurance coverage and things of that nature. Now, moving on. This is an interesting one from David Ebsworth. And I don't agree with David on this stuff, but I'm going to highlight it because there's a lot of what I would broadly categorise as beard stroking going on with the tow fraternity and all these people who never studied physics or if they did they should have paid more attention in my view they pontificate like they're friggin experts at this stuff and I want to run down David's comment because it's dead interesting and I can understand certainly how somebody would think these things except if they went to university and studied applied physics. I mean, Isaac Newton is really spinning in his grave over some of this stuff, okay? David goes, hey, John, another good video. You are correct. Airbags are an illusion for your vehicle. And what I'm inferring, David, means there is you're not really changing too much about the vehicle except its apparent rear ride height, okay? Changing the spring rate a bit, which means that Whatever the imposed load is, you just get less deflection overall of the total spring. The airbag becomes part of the spring system, right? And effectively, that gives you an overall spring rate increase. Vehicle looks level, however. It makes your combination look like everything is even, meaning back to its nice level status. Not that I'm sure we should aspire to that if we put a heavy load in the vehicle, however but it will put massive amounts of downward force on the rear axle to the point of doing major damage. To which I would say, au contraire, dude. I don't see how fitting an airbag or any other kind of spring will change the load imposed on the vehicle because the load imposed on the vehicle is the shit that you put in your vehicle and the download limit of, you know, the download weight of the tow ball, you know, the trailer. There's a bit of download. It's cantilevered to buggery off the back of the chassis, so it's quite an effect. But the spring does not change the imposed loads is kind of where I'm going with this. All it does is make a micro-adjustment to the height of the rear of your vehicle and obviously the height of the tow ball and unless you're making adjustments like this it's really not changing 
the imposed loads by any meaningful amount. It certainly doesn't change the load on the axle to any degree that I can see, all right? To the point of doing major damage, allegedly. I don't think so. This is the bit where Newton is kind of spinning in his grave. But while the airbags are smashing the rear axle, I don't see them smashing the rear axle at all because the rear axle is just subjected to the same load irrespective, right? They will throw extra weight over your steer tyres, putting them overweight. I don't see how they can change the load on the front axle at all if you put airbags on the back. I mean, there might be a micro adjustment because if the mass centre is up here and this is the back and this is the front and they're sitting like that with your trailer attached and you go like that, maybe the mass centroid moves forward slightly, but we're only talking about a couple of degrees at most. Like, it's not going to have a major effect on the weight on the front. It's just, that's just physics. And irrespective, you know, the vehicle's sitting there like that decoupled, okay, there's a weight on the front and there's a weight on the rear. If you go and put something on the rear and it sits like that and then you jack it back up, then how is it changing the front? That just, how is that changing the front in a meaningful way, like by a significant amount, enough to worry about? David goes on and says this issue is hard for people to get their heads around because the vehicle looks even, and I assume he means level. And I get that it's hard to see that you've imposed a load on a vehicle if it hasn't deflected as a result of that load, but as for this massive loads on the rear axle and increasing the load on the front, that's just not the case. I mean, if you feel how much load is on your finger when you lift something heavy like that, if you move that there or move this here, it doesn't change the load at the front by any significant amount. And it also doesn't change the load on the rear by any significant amount, right? All it does is change the height. The imposed loads are a function of the shit that you put in your ute, the mass of the ute, the mass of the stuff you carry, and the mass of the trailer on top. And the airbag doesn't change those things. David goes on and says, no vehicle manufacturers will pay out on warranty if you have airbags fitted and damage to axle or steering items. This also goes for the people who supplied and fit the airbags. They will not cover the damage to the vehicle. Okay, and nor should they, I'd suggest, David, because airbags allow you to overload your vehicle and make it look like it's all good, okay? This is the problem with airbags. So you can have a badly overloaded vehicle as a consequence of a badly configured trailer that presses down too hard on the tow ball and knocks your headlights up into the air and all of that stuff and reduces your steering efficiency because you've configured it badly or it's overloaded or you've put the trailer on and then you've put, you know, 900 kilos of firewood in the tray of your ute or something and it's just massively overloaded. And if you do that, you can pump it, go from here to pump back up, right, with your airbags, and it'll look great, but it doesn't stop it being overloaded. And therefore, if you damage the vehicle as a consequence of it being overloaded, you shouldn't be eligible for a free kick, warranty-wise, from the manufacturer or the dude who fitted your airbag. So sorry, David, I don't agree with that comment and I wanted to address it in case it just sat up there for eternity and a whole bunch of people went, oh, oh I did not know that because pretty sure that if we reanimate Isaac Newton, he'd be going, nah, I don't think so, okay? 
Now, Alex Frankel now goes, interesting that the wagon version of all utes, a coil rear end, and the mounting point for said coil is generally where an airbag is fitted on the same chassis as the ute. And I'd go, yeah, but if you're in R&D in a car company, right, and some bean counter comes in one day with a marketing professional and says, look, we've got this ute, let's turn it into a wagon, that'll be cheap, then your job is to do this conversion for the least amount of money. And I'm sure in the brochure, there'll be some comment about, oh, we fitted a coil sprung rear end to improve the ride quality and give you more refinement and all that bullshit. But I'd suggest there's a geometric certainty in all of this, and I'll lay it out for you. Got some more cheat notes here, right? This is really about the Pajero Sport as an example, but I'm pretty sure that all of these other hasty Ute 2 uh, wagon conversions like the MUX and the Fortuna and Everest, etc., pretty sure they, wait, they work this way as well. And there would be a packaging consideration for the leaf spring because obviously you leave your axles here and you've got to have a front attachment point and a rear attachment point for the leaf spring, right? So you need chassis real estate to package up that leaf spring. And when you turn a Triton into a Pajero Sport, it's about half a metre shorter. So the overall length of a Pajero Sport is... 4.825 metres, and the overall length of a Triton is 5.305. The wheelbase has come down from 3 metres in the Triton to 2.8 in the Pajero Sport. So they've moved the wheels together by 200 millimetres, and then they've just sawed 280 off the back of the Triton. There's your chassis for your Pajero Sport, okay? When you do that, there might not be enough room at the front to get a decent leaf spring in, because obviously you want a reasonably long leaf spring, they work better longer. And there might not be enough room on the back because you've just shortened it by, you know, that much to facilitate the rear attachment point either. And the obvious solution here is to just throw the leaf spring away and fit a coil because coils only need this much real estate kind of thing, okay? So there's definitely a packaging dimension to the conversion. and. You know, everything else, they try and keep it as uh, constant as possible. Like, they want the whole front end to be the same and then just modify the back to put the wagon on the back, thereby lunching off all of the R&D that's already been done, or at least as much of that as possible. So let's move on to Chris Power now and also Dan Bywaters, who ask variations on the same question. This is kind of interesting, and I want to spend a bit of time on this because this is one of these beard-stroking myths as well. Chris says, do you believe airbags can cause chassis bending due to carrying weight on a different point on the chassis? I hear this all the time about airbags, right? The load's not meant to be carried there, and that's bullshit, okay? Uh, Dan says, correct me if I'm wrong. No worries. But there are fundamental differences between the use of airbags on leaf springs and the use of airbags within coil springs. With a leaf spring, airbags place a load on the chassis at a point that was not designed to have that sort of load placed on it. Not true. It introduces a new pivot point that can stress the chassis. With airbags in coils, the point of the load is unchanged the load is placed squarely on the upper and lower spring seat. So we'll get back to Dan in the second part of his comment in just a minute. But 
want to comment on this about this myth that no load was meant to be borne by this space. I'll show you a shot of Airbag Man about to fit the spring. And what you can see is where that spring is going to go. And it's going to replace the bump stop. That's that rubber block below. And you can also see above that rubber block, there's an anvil built into the chassis, welded on. A reinforcement that is welded in place there so that it can bear the load when the bump stop hits it. And I just want to be crystal clear with you about what this means, okay? The bump stop is there to stop the axle smashing into the chassis when you overload the spring, okay? It's a rubber block designed to mitigate that impact. So when you drop down into a washaway in your chitois, right, you're driving to Dingo Piss Creek, you come down into a washaway, the spring reaches its maximum compression, the rear spring, when it gets onto that ramp that takes you back onto the road right at the end of the washaway, it's really compressed and you hear that horrible thump like somebody's just got this inside a 44 gallon drum and hit you next to the ear with it. That's the spring compressing and hitting the bump stop and the airbag is being fitted in this place that was already well designed to cope with much bigger loads than the airbag is going to impose upon it. So this hypothesis, and I'm really being kind here when I call it that, this idea that <laughs> the airbag is in a place that is never designed to carry any substantial load, I mean, the people putting this idea forward, have they ever gotten under a friggin' car and looked at the bits and do they understand what a bump stop actually is like it's the last line of defense before you smash two big heavy expensive things together right this point on the chassis is specifically designed to carry massive loads and when you look up there's an anvil built in and it's stitch welded in place and <sighs> back to dan both of my cars four-wheel drive wagons with coil rear ends have airbags fitted Okay, dude. Max towball weight for either my boat or camper could be 200 kilograms at the absolute most. The airbags work really well for me. Tow within your vehicle's limits. The less weight, the better. Totally agree. Use the airbags to effectively increase the spring rate, remove sag, and return the vehicle to a neutral posture. Unquote. Neutral posture. We'll get to that. I don't think it makes sense to aspire to this posture neutrality because... Vehicles, especially utes and four-wheel drives, are designed with some load carrying in mind, and therefore, when they've got particular loads on board, the suspension changes the attitude of the car, and other systems in the vehicle, like electronic stability control and ABS brakes and all of that crap, that compensates, right? It's tuned for that. This attitude means whatever in the compensation for, you know, R&D, and then you go and pump it back up to a different attitude when it's heavily loaded, that's unlikely to be a brilliant idea. Some sag under load is acceptable, right? I know with my Triton, I had about 400 kilos of firewood in it the other day, taking it down to my ageing father's house, and um, it rides so much better like that, steers so much better, and yeah, it, it, it sinks down a little bit, but everything about it dynamically is better including the ride quality when you've got 
a more balanced kind of load scenario, and we're about halfway to the maximum payload with 400 kilos of wood and me on board, okay? So I'd suggest that postural neutrality is not something that should be idealised. Some amount of sag under load is completely acceptable and worked out, designed in, in R&D. So there's that. Now, let's talk finally about uh, Space Goat 92 and his ideas. So he says, so regarding your comment on the pig trailers, if you were to have the wheels further back towards the back of the caravan, would that make it more stable on the road? And at what point would it be considered too far back? Okay, so just to recap on what Space Goat here is talking about. He's talking about the difference between a semi-trailer and a pig trailer. Now, a pig trailer has the axles in the centre, like a caravan or a box trailer and things of that nature, right? So pig trailers tend to be fairly unstable in pitch. Well, your head goes forward under brakes and your head goes back under acceleration because of inertial pitching. Now, they also tend to be a bit unstable in yaw because they're free to pivot this way because the wheels are not in the corners, making that sort of horizontal yaw type pivoting easier. And one solution for this, and semi-trailers do it, so hey, it must work, you put a big fuck-off axle group on the back and then you drop the front onto the prime mover. The obvious problem with this strategy for towing with Yo Ute is that if your trailer weighs three and a half tonnes, then half the load's going to be here and half the load's going to be here on the tow ball of the ute. And that means 1,750 kilos of tow ball download limit, which is inconceivable in the context of what utes can tolerate and what land cruisers can tolerate and things of that nature. I think a far more workable solution for heavier vehicles, heavier caravans that is, is a dog type trailer with four wheels, two at the front, two at the back, and a bit of pivoting, like steering type pivoting taking place at the front. And I honestly don't know why that doesn't take place, because a dog type trailer is more stable in pitch, and it is also more stable in yaw. And uh, I've never had a satisfactory explanation about why we haven't got dog-style trailers for really heavy boats and vans and things of that nature, but it sounds like a good idea to me. Now, finally, before I let you go, I just want to talk to you about how to really damage your ute. Here's the recipe, and I don't want you to do it. I want you to avoid doing it by understanding the mechanism, okay? And this is also the differential diagnosis for this pivot point hypothesis with airbags, right? There's no epidemic of utes or anything else out there with an airbag on a leaf spring and the chassis bent like a hinge just at the anvil where the bump stop used to be. That does not happen. It's not a thing, okay? If you want to damage the chassis, you want to see pictures of all kinds of utes with damaged chassis, it's always a banana-type bend, right? It's always this banana-type bend right here, and it happens just between the tray and the cab. That's right. I've gone to the trouble of building an actual ute to tow a big chitois, and we'll hook it up and go for a little ghetto physics jaunt in the outback, shall we? Pro tip, a man can never have 
too many one, two, three blocks. These things are just beautiful, just like clamps actually. You can't have too many clamps, you can't have too many one, two, three blocks. They are the perfect welding shim, they're precision ground, they're exactly one inch by two inches by three inches. You can stack them up, you can bolt them together. They're just precision squares for internal corners for clamping and there is nothing they can't do, pretty much. So, if you're thinking about a late-breaking gift for Father's Day, you'll remain in the will, guaranteed. Okay, so, cab, tray, chitois. Okay, here's the problem. While we're on the surface of a billiard table, driving around, it's all good, right? There's never a problem doing this. You'd have to be so massively overloaded. In fact, according to Newton, this is exactly the same as just being stopped. So if the chassis's not collapsing, just being stopped, and you're on the surface of a billiards table going in a straight line, two thumbs up, okay? So let's think about this, though, in the real world, going for a drive on a properly shit outback road with washaways and other isolated geometric deficiencies, shall we? So let's think about this. Your ute drives into a washaway because you were too busy looking at your lovely wife's legs and not busy enough looking at the road ahead for hours and hours on end through busted-ass cattle scrub, okay? Front end falls into the washaway, move a little bit in slow-mo, front end hits the exit to the washaway, there's a big thump, like this, and then the back end falls into the washaway, right? And then it goes forward a little bit, and there's an even bigger thump when the back end hits the exit to the washaway. And this is Newton's second law, just tapping you on the shoulder. Newton's second law, of course, says that the time rate of change of momentum of a body acted upon by an unbalanced force is inversely proportional to the mass and directly proportional to the magnitude of the unbalanced force. He's really just saying F equals MA. If you apply a force to something with mass, it makes it accelerate. Right? So the back end, when you're exiting the washaway, is subjected to a force and it's trying its little heart out to accelerate up like this, okay, to get out of the frigging washaway because that's where the rest of the vehicle's going and it kind of wants to remain attached. So there's that, okay? And the only problem is big heavy chitois, right? Big heavy chitois has inertia. Now, if you're hazy on the issue of inertia, okay, and this really is ghetto physics, the example is house brick, okay? Put a house brick on the floor and you slide it five or six metres along the floor with your big toe, okay? No problem, dude. You can do it all day long. I don't know why you'd want to, and you will scratch the beautiful hardwood floor, but anyway, you can do that. And you'll just have to probably get another ex-wife on the list if you do that, okay? But otherwise, you'll be okay. However, if you want to move the brick across the floor the same distance but a bit quicker, you could kick it, right? And what's going to happen, dude? You're going to be in hospital with a broken toe, clearly, because of inertia, okay? So inertia basically says that the harder you push something, the harder it pushes back. Okay? This is obvious too when you punch someone in the head. Not that I suggest you do that, but if you punch someone in the head with your fist, particularly in the forehead, big no-no, you'll break your hand, right? Because their head pushes back just as hard as your fist pushes their head. 
That's kind of how this works. Inertia is really spooky because things can be weightless and have inertia. Like if you get the King Dick uh, 46mm podger here, um, flogging spanner, sorry, and you throw it at somebody in the International Space Station, it's actually hard work to throw because inertia, and if it hits them in the head, it'll probably damage them even though it's weightless. That's inertia, okay? And interestingly enough, in inertia, you can have inertia in a straight line, and that's what we've been talking about so far, but you can also have rotational inertia, right? Angular inertia. And the best example I've got there is angle grinder, okay? Nine-inch angle grinder, you put a big fuck-off grinding disc in one of those babies and you flick it on, and it accelerates really fast, and there's a lot of angular inertia in the blade, in the disc, right? And you will feel that mother-loving angle grinder that is a death machine just waiting for you to let your guard down so that it can kill you, right? You feel that angle grinder go like that when it starts, when the disc gets up to speed, right? That's because of angular inertia. Now, your chitois, and obviously this is not to scale because chitois eclipse the ute, don't they? Your chitois is actually probably more like this, really, now that I think about it. But anyway, I had a limited model building budget for this one. Your chitois has angular inertia this way. It's hard to get it moving this way. It's a three and a half ton box full of your effluent on tour, right? It's hard to throw this end up in the sky like try doing it. It's bloody hard and it's trying to move really quickly because the back axle is being thumped up this way and it resists just the same way as someone's head resists if you try and clock them a little bit too hard one day, okay? So what happens is, this end is trying to come up, and this end here is resisting that upwards motion. So what you've effectively got here is a big inertial downwards force like that. And look what happens, dude. So if this inertial downwards force is big enough in concert with the static load cantilevered here in the tray behind the back axle, it's not looking good, is it, you know? Because what's going to happen here, you're going to get past a certain limit, and this is no longer going to be elastic. I don't know how well you can see that, but that's probably better. You see that motion? That's exactly the chassis failure motion of your average ute driven by a dick who overloads it. So my strong advice to you is to be as conservative as possible in the specification of the van so that the inertial downforce that it can contribute in that situation is within reasonably safe limits for this weakest link in the chassis in between the cab and the tray, okay? That is exactly the mechanism of the banana ramification of overloaded utes, which are just metastasizing across the outback because scientific literacy is so frigging low in Australia that people just don't get the basic concepts and how to apply them.